You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're in Burriana. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber and I'm the host of this episode and I am in Boriana, a town which boasts Europe's only orange museum. That is orange citrus fruits. I'm not talking about the colour of the facade. Anyway, joining me, I think there are other orange magazines, magazines, museums um, in Europe. Anyway, joining me after a stage which Pedro Delgado thought was such a dog, he said live on Spanish TV, he ran out of things to say with 18 kilometres to go. And Pedro Delgado is paid for, to, to have things to say about the stage. It is our great Dane, the former Team Sky Green Edge CSC press chief and Leopard Trek team manager, now journalist, writer, ace commentator, winemaker, Brian, Brian, Nigo. How you doing, Brian? Very well, thank you. That was, that was actually probably the best pronunciation. I don't even think Rob Hatch could produce a pronunciation like that. It's the first time I've tried. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was 10 out of 10. I feel like almost like honored. We've known each other for like, what, 20 years? <laughs> I know. Um, I don't know whether we'll persist with the proper pronunciation. We might uh, revert fine. to the bastardized version tomorrow. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing really well. I'm settling back into normal life before the next chunk of work. I'm, I'm going off to California after the welter. So now it's, uh, this is like the last part of the, the normal second half of the season for me until the, the harvest is the getting started quite soon. And you've been keeping a keen eye on the Vuelta a España. A pretty good start for the Danes so far, in spite of it being a modest representation for the Danes in terms of numbers at this Vuelta a España. Of course, uh, Jonas Vingegaard's here, one of the favourites for overall victory. And Brian, we'll talk in much more depth about Vingegaard and how his Vuelta has gone so far later in the episode. But, but... Um, I had murmurs at the finish today. Well, I, I think it was. It may even have been seen on the coverage, and I think people talked about it. The fact that he stopped, um, he had a natural break. In fact, Rob Hatch did talk about it on the podcast yesterday. There were a few murmurs at the finish line that you know there is illness going around in the peloton, and um, who knows whether Jonas himself may be suffering. I don't know. Have you heard anything to that effect? No, uh, but it's also quite normal. On a, on a, I mean, coming back to what you said, that Delgado was uh, deliberating after today, that it's just the stuff you need to sort of basically produce interesting conversation. And uh, you couldn't really tell on a day-to-day if someone wasn't feeling well, other than, basically, yeah, Philip uh, Sander, who was like exiting because of it. Uh, we'll see. We'll see tomorrow because if you know tomorrow is a is a real test again. Maybe not one of the harder stages, but they'll be racing tomorrow. And, and if anyone is not like a hundred percent tomorrow, we'll we'll get a much more clear indication of it than just murmurs. Brian, I would very much like to hear some murmurings, please, about the stage that was today from you. You're on the Oki. It is the tale of the etapa. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Thank you very much, Daniel. So stage five from Morella to Buriana, where you're sitting now, all in the province of Valencia. Uh, three riders didn't start today. Brian Cocard, Kobe Gossens, Ruben Guerrero were all DNSs before stage five. Eddie Dunbar crashed in a neutral zone and he abandoned earlier in the early in the stage. And actually later on uh, during the stage, Filippo Sanov, also of Aula, Jaco Aula, abandoned because of illness. Uh, but the race went on, obviously. Few attacks in the start, but it wasn't actually until... Eric Antonio Fagundes from Burgos Biatch got away. 
he worked up a decent gap, but it was as doomed as it was expected. With him uh, moving towards the Category 2 climb of Colado de la Ibola, uh, current leader in the mountain classification, Sepulveda, attacked and he took the points ahead of uh, Furugandas and went away on his own. They both eventually got caught in the later parts of the stage with 41 and 38 kilometers to go and the big team started to ramp up the tempo towards the final and the build-up to what was the inevitable bunch sprint. Remco Evenepoel, quite brilliantly though before this, took the sixth bonus second in the only intermediate sprint in Nules with 10 kilometers to go. With five kilometers to go, the sprinter teams took control and threw the roundabout and traffic islands coming into the finish. A crash with just uh, just before the three kilometer neutralized time zone uh, marred a little bit the finish, but probably didn't change the key contenders for the sprint. But looking at the replay, it actually looked like Vingard and Evenepoel were quite lucky from not get hitting the, the tarmac. Caden Grove was handed the perfect lead out again, but just barely edged out Filippo Gana, who looked like it to be in the wind for the same amount of like two rounds on the velodrome. But uh, Caden Grove did take the, the very impressive victory, and he's certainly looking like the fastest man on the on the Welter Peloton as of now. Uh, no major changes in the GC and in the other uh, Jersey leaders' uh, context, other than. Evenepoel taking those six seconds and also firmly holding on to his red jersey. There we are. Excellent. Thank you, Brian. Um, Brian, I've been waiting for this day. I've been waiting for the day when Eric Antonio Fagundes um, got in a break because I did. I was doing a bit of research about him yesterday. I was curious about Uruguayans. Um, of course, we talk a lot about Latin Americans um, in major tours. And in fact, we will be today. We'll be talking about Colombians. Um, I was curious. Uh, Uruguay is not a country with a very rich cycling her- um, heritage. It's pretty flat, actually, um, in contrast to what, Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador. Uh, three Uruguayans, I think, have ridden the Vuelta um, up until now. Hector Rondan was pro in 1980 and 1981 um, good story actually he was scouted by Jose Miguel Echevarri Miguel Indurain's historic direct sportif at the Vuelta Uruguay and he told uh, Rondan he could come to Spain if he paid for his ticket uh, Rondan's mates then organised a dance to raise a thousand dollars and off he went and he rode the Vuelta uh, later well, his career ended um, with a crash after a couple of years, but he went on to become the sales director for San Miguel Beer. Oh, he's done a great, he's done a great job at that. I certainly, I'm a very happy customer. Yeah, and he was a coach of the Spanish women's team as well. Um, second one was Fabrizio Ferrari, who rode in 2013 for Caja Rural. And uh, Fagundez, our Uruguayan friend, who was in the break for a long time today, similar story to Rondan in that. It, it was also quite difficult for him to come up with the money to buy his ticket to Europe. Um, he talked about this at the Welter presentation a few days ago. And um, he's also had a hard time adapting to European racing because of the lack of hills, he said, in Uruguay. It can't be as flat as Denmark, I'm sorry. Like, what, kind no. of, what kind of excuse is that? We have a, a two-time tour winner and the highest point of Denmark is like barely 150 meters. Like, come on. What kind of excuse is that? And you, you also have the best climber in the world. So, yeah, it's, um, terrible, terrible excusing by um, Fagundes, our friend Eric Antonio uh, Fagundes. Brian, let's hear a little bit more about the sprint, shall we? Um, let's hear about Caden Grove's second victorious sprint in this Vuelta a España from his lead-out man, who's a bit of a new a new name, new face, new personality for me, um, Robert Geis um, of Alpacin de Kerning. 
And then we're going to hear from Filippo Ganna, who, well, we discovered today, can also turn his hand to bunch sprinting. In fact, he's done this before, hasn't he? In fact, he won a stage of the Tour of Wallonia recently in a bit of a bunch sprint, so not too much of a surprise. And then finally, you mentioned also Eddie Dunbar pulling out and uh, Zana as well at Jayco Aluna. Alula, they lost two men today. We're going to hear from their director sportif. They're Dutch, sort of Aussie. Um, he's taken on a bit of an Aussie twang these days. Um, director sportif Peter Veining. Here they are. I had a super good day, and uh, now it's it's unbelievable. Winning two days in a row in a Grand Tour, in my first Grand Tour, it's actually amazing. Yeah. The fact that Ghana was there suggested it was a strange sprint. I mean, just talk us through it from your point of view. With the roundabout, there was a crash and then everything was on uh, one line. I saw my sprinter was uh, was still there. He was five positions behind me, so I gave the sign to the guys for go full gas. And uh, he found my wheel in the last uh, last K and then he shouted at me, go full gas. And then I shouted at Edward, full gas. And then that was it. We all went full and uh, in the end it was enough. And even more satisfying when you guys have to take all of the resp responsibility all day, pretty much. Yeah, I think Jason and Jimmy were the only guys uh, who uh, we took the peloton uh, in front. So uh, good job to everyone. Filippo, we didn't know you were a bunch sprinter. Um, did that surprise you, where you found yourself and the sprint that you managed to do? Yeah, at 30 to go, G asked me how to feel and I try to do something. So he say, if you feel good, you try. I try, but nothing, so we see for the next stage. Have you ever thought that that could be in your future to do some bunch sprints? I don't like it, it's too dangerous. <laughs> if uh, there is uh, something to do, I try, but I try to reduce the risk. <laughs> okay, well, Peter, not the best day for you guys. Um, Eddie, I spoke to him briefly, at the, saw him at the finish, he seemed to be okay, but he crashed in the neutralized zone. What else can you tell me what, what happened? Well, yeah, he crashed in the first kilometer of the of the neutralized uh, neutralized section. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it was uh, from the yeah the first couple of k's in the neutralized section were going going down, and he uh, maybe he hit the corner a little bit uh, with too 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 much speed. I don't know, but in the end, uh, yeah, he crashed. His front wheel uh, slipped out, slipped away, and he and he and he crashed. So yeah, that's it. And Zana, he's also out of the race. Yeah, Filippo, uh, yesterday he, uh, he had a little fever, uh, so we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe it's a sort of a virus, we don't know. And uh, yeah, this, today he was just empty. And I hear there may be something going around the peloton. A few guys have been sick the last few days. Do you have any other guys who are suffering? No, in our team everybody is, uh, yeah, well, we suffer from the crashes from the first couple of days. But uh, the virus is for the rest, not in our team, no. So how does it change things now? You got Zana was also a guy for the mountains or the hilly stages. You lost Eddie. Um, how do you regroup now? Well, yeah, it's a big loss for the team uh, losing these two guys, uh, especially for what is coming up the the next two weeks. We need to adjust our plan a little bit, and uh, well, yeah, we're still here with young riders uh, that can learn a lot, and uh, for sure, this this Vuelta is not over yet for us. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, Brian, we heard from three individuals with contrasting fortunes today. Um, Robert Case, 
of Alpecin de Koenig, a successful lead out that he and his teammates did for Caden Groves today. We heard from Filippo Ganna and we heard from Peter Veining about J.K. Alula's struggles. I saw Eddie Dunbar, um, as I alluded to in that interview, at the finish. He was limping quite heavily but um, was in decent spirits. Um, Zana, we're not too sure exactly what the, the problem that he's suffering with is. Um, but as I said earlier on, there's talk of a few people in the peloton having digestive issues. There's one who asked me, who I spoke to um, after the finish, who asked me not to say anything um, because he's he's rides for one of the main GC leaders teams. And he'll probably tell us in a few days that he was suffering, but he'll talk in the past tense, but he doesn't want to reveal too much at the moment. You know how that often happens? Uh, well, not people telling you to keep the secret, but uh, <laughs> stomach bugs going around, especially in the start of a, a Grand Tour, if there's been a lot of rain, all, all of that stuff that comes up uh, via the rain, uh, either on your bidon, on the tip of your bidon, or, or literally like uh, th- to your face and then gets ingested. And... Uh, as you can imagine, a lot of the stuff that the rain carries with it is not necessarily things you want to be in contact with bacterially. So often a lot of stomach bug comes uh, following from a heavy rainfall in a, in a big stage race. Brian, one man who doesn't seem to be suffering in any way so far in this World Tire Spain, Caden Groves. Um, it was, well... It was a sprint that looked very comfortable for him. I know the margin was small, but he was sort of looking over his shoulder the whole time. As we said yesterday, De Koenig or Alpecin De Koenig are the only real proper sprinters team here. What a sprinters team they've brought to this um, World Espana. Incredible work they did today. I haven't seen, I don't recall too many occasions recently where one team has shouldered so much of the responsibility um, for a stage, but they, they did that today. And then Filippo Ganna, who's an intriguing one. One might think, Brian, that the Vuelta, the Vuelta as it presents itself this year with not too many strong sprinters teams, is the perfect place for a guy like him to try and to sort of explore his own potential as maybe a bunch sprinter. But we heard him say there he doesn't really feel he's cut out for it. Um, he, he, he struggles when it gets, well, when, when he thinks it gets dangerous. Um, interestingly, he, he bumped into Mateo Sobrero, who's his great friend after the finish line, um, great friend and also partner to Filippo Ganna's sister, have I got that the other way around? I always get this the wrong way around. Anyway, um, Sobrero said to Ganna, I told you, I told you um, today was for you. So it was obviously something that was kind of mm, marinating at the back of his head somehow. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, that the the difference between the, I mean, there was no leader for Ghana. It was positioning, first of all, when he came into the finish. But Kate Groves had like textbook lead out. And I heard some murmurs, but that's obviously not being at the world. So that's just the good old internet. The thing, oh, had, had Ghana only had a lead out, he would have won that, you know, with half the effort. I, I just don't think that that's how Ghana can win, actually. I think he's, he, he has sort of like a gradual acceleration towards the, towards the finish line. And he has that as the mark for where his top acceleration, his top speed needs to be. And it's all, I think it's like almost like how pilots work. If they land an airplane or they get up to uh, the cruising altitude, they, it's just that, that's the top speed they can go. And I remember the same, like uh, Fabian Cancellara could, could sometimes produce a really good sprint mm. and a sprint that could sometimes outsprint um, some of the fast men in the peloton. But it was, he usually was sitting down the whole way doing it. And it was just a gradual acceleration to the finish line. And I think anyone that had been in front of him, 
I'm, that timing would have been almost impossible. You know, even if you had, let's say, like something like Garen Thomas was doing a lead out similar to what he did for, of sorts, for Cavendish, I suppose, uh, at, at the last stage of the Giro. I'm not sure that would have helped uh, Ghana. And I think that's one of the reasons why he'll probably not ever be a, a real bunch sprint specialist. I mean, he can obviously also do so many things. He just has a gradual acceleration that's potentially the best in the world. We see that on the on the track. Uh, mm. We saw that at the Olympics. We almost saw it at the, at the track worlds in Glasgow where they, where they took silver. So I, don't, I, don't, I just think when the occasion arises, it will make sense for him to try and win, especially with, with how they are structured at the Welter, Ineos that is. So I'm, I'm not sure he could have done any differently, even if he was out in the wind for a good 350, 400 meters. That's really interesting you say that, Brian, because over the years, I've thought that about a few riders of a similar ilk to Ganna. Cancellara is a great example. I remember thinking this about Taylor Finney at one stage, um, yeah, just remember, having yeah, seen exactly, him. Exactly. The, when he won the first stage in Poland, didn't he? Yeah, yeah and, and also uh, at the time being influenced by the, the stories and the trajectories of some guys who did end up as sprinters, the likes of Marcel Kissel, who had started life as a time sure. trialist. I always thought um, Alessandro Petacchi almost looked like a time trialist sometimes the way he rode and those guys the two I've just mentioned obviously went on to become uh, the, the, the the best sprinters in the world at a certain point in time but um, yeah there's a subtle distinction probably a distinction that notwithstanding what you've just said escapes our full understanding and probably a team coach or a physiologist could tell us exactly what is the difference between someone who can um, sprint in the way that Caden Groves can and Ganna. Um, accelerate, accelerations aren't the same as sprints you know it's just a uh, it's it's a different way of hitting your maximum speed and i a lot of goes into the competition and that doesn't take anything away from Caden Groves but had had there been other like top sprinters which i think we can count him in on that in that group at this point it, it, i think it would have been different today and there would have been a different lead out situation and probably three or four more guys in the mix and let's not forget that that crash did somehow changed the a little bit the structure of the the finish you know there's there's people in i follow cycling somewhat closely but there's people in the top 15 that i've never heard of i have to admit maybe you maybe you know them better than i do but they're all new names to me some of them at least interesting speaking to some of our belgian colleagues uh, after the finish just about the alpacin de Kernink was sort of sprint division uh, as it were and i also asked caden groves afterwards sort of about the equation between the competition that he faces at alpacin de Kernink because obviously he's gone to a team with jasper Philipson, who was who's very much in the lead sprinters berth as it were as against or set alongside the, the cross-pollination of kind of knowledge and know-how that you get in a team like that, which I imagined he would have benefited from already in the short time that he's been at Alpacin de Koenig. And he said, no, that definitely outweighs the disadvantage of the competition. You know, he talked about his direct sportif, Frederick Willems, who's a specialist sprint direct sportif that goes to the biggest races. And um, it's interesting that Alpacin de Koenig have kept the two lead out divisions separate. So they're building one with Groves and one with Philipson. Well, it certainly helps for the team dynamics as well. So even if in the if you say there were the natural hierarchy, Philipson would obviously be on top with the you know especially with his exploits in the in the tour. But if you actually have guys that are good enough to support both of them, you're not going to get into that situation where you think that you know say with um, Quick Step, you know in the heyday when Merkel was at his best, if he and they've had two sprinters often, two guys who can win stages in Grand Tours often, then you'd always say well wherever Morkov goes will be where they really try and win, and wherever 
I'm sorry to say this, Sabatini goes is where they where they stand like stand like half a chance, you know. And with Caden Groves building up his own leadout train, and and hopefully for him he's able to keep it that way. Then why why wouldn't they go for for you know more than one grand? There's three of those grand tours, and I think Caden Groves at this point is is still okay with not going to the tour as as the main guy. Talk a little bit more about well, we'll talk a lot more about Remgo Evenepoel and the GC battle later on. We'll also talk about your countryman Jonas Vingegaard. But just um, staying with today's stage, that sprint to get those bonus seconds. What did that tell us? I think it tells us a lot more. I was actually thinking about this the other day when you said, "Ah, oh, because you you always look very closely to who is like fifth and sixth in a mountain stage, like hard sort of the sprint to the line in a smaller group, or or you always notice when people have a few seconds better in the prologue. You know, in this case, it was a little bit different with the team time trial. Why wouldn't you take those seconds if if it was relatively easy? And they they certainly made their competitors look a little bit like half asleep. It certainly wasn't the way UAE had planned it with with Remco coming up there. But it does maybe it tells a bigger story about Remco having a feeling that this could be a, a, a quite close welter in, in in the GC context. I I don't know that. I mean, because he, he does take those seconds, and if you look at the if you look at the Giro. As much as you probably easier to compare the Giro to the Welter with those types of uh, stage uh, architectures, but I think that he probably has an idea that this this could be very close, and then why not take those seconds either way? With Roglic being a little bit subpar in those, and there'll be a lot of those that type of finishes. I think Remco will try and and, and get those seconds at every at every occasion. There'll still be like a, a sort of checks and balances in the sense that eventually they will at a breakaway goal, but in his immediate comparison to Vingegaard. Roglic, etc. I, I think he he will he. I mean, if he can take a handful of those, that that gives him actually a substantial margin. It's interesting that Jumbo Visma aren't buzzing around when he's going for those bonus sprints. You think back to Catalonia, that battle with Roglic earlier this year, and there was a lot of sprinting. Well, in my head, um, in my memory, there was a fair bit of sprinting against each other for bonus seconds. I can certainly remember it happening on a couple of occasions. Um, I got the sense, and I can't remember which interview it was. It was maybe with Sepp Kuss the other day. We heard from him that in Jumbo Visma's thinking about this Vuelta a España, they are budgeting for a Remco Evenepoel, who has peaked for the World Time Trial Championship, or who's certainly been in excellent form for the World Time Trial Championship. As I said a couple of days ago, he's coming hot, yeah. red hot, yeah. and may fade slightly. It may or may not. You know, there's obviously the Welter being the Welter, there's a lot of hard finishes, but there aren't like a lot of long, undulating, high altitude climbs. There's a lot of fast paced mountain stage finishes. And with the with the margin that he got you know, for one reason or the other in the team time trial. I think they're just trying to build on that and then seeing how substantial a margin they can they can get without too much of an effort. You know, he he gained more seconds in the bonus sprint today than he gained on the mountain stage in Andorra, you know. So, you know, when you think of the return of effort, it, it, it makes a whole lot of sense to go for those seconds, especially if, if this welter will end up being really close. And especially with him potentially ending up in a in a Jumbo Visma sandwich between Roglic and Vingegaard. So because uh, then he actually pushes the pressure towards Jumbo Visma to try and actually attack with one of them and then see how he reacts, you know. But that can only work if both Roglic and Vingegaard are super ready. And, and we, we don't really know that as the small parenthesis, at least around Roglic at this point. Another day down though, Brian, another another series of roundabouts that Primoz Roglic just survived, so that's good news. Um, Brian, we talked about Filippo Ganna 
earlier on, um, maybe his second life, probably not second life as a bunch sprinter. Um, just thinking about Ineos for a second. This morning in beautiful Morea, um, beautiful. I think a lot of there were a lot of pictures online of this gorgeous um, old town um, perched on uh, on a on a rocky outcrop. I caught up with one of the Ineos Grenadiers riders who is sort of going under the radar a little bit um, here at the Vuelta a España. Egan Bernal, of course, is someone who up until a year or two ago would have been one of the favourites for any Vuelta a España he attended, tried to ride. At the Tour de France a couple of weeks ago, he sort of suggested to me that winning the Vuelta is the last big remaining goal in his career. This morning, I had another opportunity to catch up with Egan Bernal who's doing his second Grand Tour of the Year, having finished the Tour de France. Um, and he is the subject of today's... El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Well, Egan, it's a pleasure to see you here, but I didn't expect to see you here at the Vuelta España when we saw you at the Tour de France. Um, just talk to us about the decision that you made, I guess, with your coaches to come here to the Vuelta. Well, that was actually the plan even before coming to, to the Tour. Obviously, during the Tour, I was in a lot of fatigue and I didn't expect to be so tired in the, in the, in the end. And for sure, there was a, a bit of doubt. To, to come here between. Finally, uh, I think I, I recovered well. I did just some easy trainings and with Xavi Arteche, my coach, uh, we decided that uh, it could be a good uh, training and uh, another step uh, looking forward for the next year. So here I am. What do you think the tour gave you? Um, I know at the time you were just very happy to finish it, but what do you, do you think it's given you and your body in this sort of recovery that you're, you're in the middle of? Physically, a lot of endurance, for sure. At home, it's impossible to do this kind of, of efforts. And I think it's, sometimes it's good to push uh, your body over the limits. And, and, and also mentally, it was, it was a good thing for me. Obviously hard, but at the same time, I think it gave me a lot of motivation. And I, I know where I am. I, I know I have improved a lot, but also I need to still working hard to to achieve uh, another step so I think yeah mentally and physically it was good for me I think with uh, Sammy at the tour he said your heart and your lungs they're back to what they were so maybe they're on a muscular level there are still improvements that need to be made is that what you would say as well yeah 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 uh, also I think if, if we look in detail in my to my right leg it's a bit smaller than than, than before so i need to still gaining some some muscle and some uh, strength in the in the in the legs that's part of the process and i think uh, with these races like the tour where you need to all day pushing and pushing i think it, it gives me a bit more but uh, for sure i need to to do a lot of work in the in the gym and all this stuff in in this uh, off season. So, what are your goals here at the Vuelta again? What do you expect from yourself here at the Vuelta? I, I would like to to be useful for the team. I want to finish the the La Vuelta and and think I did a difference coming here, not just be around and 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 do nothing. So, that's my 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 goal to to help to help the team and and feel good uh, with myself. And last couple of things, Egan. Um, we're used to being here at the Vuelta and there being lots of Colombian television reporters. And the fans are still here, but obviously 
the situation is not as well you're not dominating Colombians Grand Tours in the way that you were five or six years ago um, how do you see the situation in terms of talent coming through because we've had Tejada we've had Buitrago but the, the, there isn't a lot of riders um, 22, 23, 24 years old in Colombia we have a lot of talent like uh, the, the kids and the young guys there they are just impressive but obviously uh, we are in the other side of the world the economy is, is not the same so for us I think we are in a bit of a, an advantage you say we, we have talent we just need to to wait and uh, to be patient and also the, the teams there they need to, to bring more the guys we, we need to, to have more opportunities because uh, right now is it's not uh, it's, it's not the same we are not competing with the with the same kind of money or the say or, or, or the same stuff you know so now the, the, the cycling is is so hard that just a uh, 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 different wheels just different brand of, of bike can make big big difference so I think it's, it's more that I think we have a lot of talent in Colombia for sure did it used to rely on maybe a couple of individuals people like I don't know a cuadro Belda, you know, just a few guys, um, the, uh, uh, Alberati, who helped you. And maybe those individuals aren't there, the, the guys who are bringing the talent over. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure that they are trying to, to, to find some guys. But uh, at the same time, they are here in, in, in Europe. And so they just know what people say about about the guys who are there. So it's... it's it's, it's different when, for example, there are lot lot of races in Colombia. Guys uh, doing really well, but so just some guys are, are coming here in, in Europe to compete with the with the best guys. So for sure, some guys are coming, but uh, I, I'm just saying it's, it's it's different the situation for us, for the guys who who can come to Europe or not. I I, I was lucky because doing mountain bike, uh, I was. I was able to come to Europe, otherwise maybe I would be racing in, in, in Colombia and, and it would be a different history for me. Well, some interesting things to sort of press pause on, double click on there, Brian. Um, Bernal, obviously, well, he's, he's still very much in recovery mode, isn't he? And, um, well, we knew that, having seen the way he rode at the Tour de France getting better all the time I think but it would surprise me if he is in and around the the, the best climbers in this Vuelta a España but he could be an excellent domestique for Garrett Thomas of course and then his comments about Colombian cycling we're going to return to this later in the Vuelta Brian maybe I'm going to maybe um, have a chat with uh, Victor Hugo Peña who is the first Colombian ever to ride the or ever to wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France he's here working for ESPN and um, he could probably give some insight on the, the way the sort of talent pool in Colombia I wouldn't say it's dried up but certainly the supply line to Europe and the biggest teams has dried up and this has been in, in my thoughts um, over the last few days because there are a lot of teams who are looking for Grand Tour riders not necessarily winners but guys who can finish third fourth fifth sixth and seventh and there were an awful lot of Colombians who certainly fitted the bill up until quite recently you know you think of Chavez is is sort of um, well, he's in his early 30s now, fading, one might say. Uran, 
Nairo Quintana has exited stage, Superman Lopez. So it is a, a, a sort of trend, a bit of a macro trend. It was interesting to get Egan's thoughts about. I mean, at any given point, everyone is looking for the next revelation, whether they come from Uruguay or Denmark or Colombia. I think some of the big teams, they don't really care. They just want the next big thing. The problem is now, it, unless you get the millennium talent, who are you going to take uh, with a realistic chance to win the Tour de France in the next three, four years? You know, I think I'm not saying you can forget about that because that's what we said after Bernal won the first time. We said, well, that's, there goes half a decade of the tour basically being potentially dominated by him. Don't you think that also like sometimes good, sometimes not so good collaboration between Savio and, and the Baker? <laughs> The pasticciere. I mean, that, that was like almost like the butterfly effect of talent development coming into Europe. Maybe that's the maybe that's the pipeline that's dried out. You know? Hands off, Gianni Savio. Um, you're of course referring to Giuseppe Acquadro, the Italian agent who had a well, he had a very rich portfolio, rich in more ways than one um, portfolio of South American stars, and he was uh, as alluded to in that interview he was kind of instrumental in bringing some of them over and um yeah that supply line has dried up um a little bit brian what's going to be the next big superpower um i was thinking about this the other day i think i think norway is a, is a good bet norwegian sport is very much on the up at the moment um even in golf for example victor hovland is kind of the man of the moment in golf but the really interesting things happening in, in endurance sport in Norway we've talked about the triathletes before Gustav Eden and Kristen Blumenfeld um, the middle distance runners and we're starting to see more and more Norwegian cyclists and there's this um, what's been referred to as the Norwegian method double lactate sessions and so on and so forth some of it is is kind of um, marketing spin but definitely as I say a country which in sporting terms is on the up yeah the talent development is certainly very visible and we see the consequences of it in the same way that that we've seen in Denmark I mean they've Denmark has a lot of extraordinary talents in the pipeline coming through the junior ranks at the moment uh, not just for GC racing but also I think for classics and for potentially even sprinting when you saw guys like Foller coming in through the the 211 year oftentimes you say like if we go back to the comparison say to Colombia countries like Norway Denmark compared to Colombia they they now have an, an infrastructure and a and a talent development ability at such a high level that I, I think that for them coming directly into a world tour development team or a world tour team as such at a very early age is 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 quite likely I think it's quite likely that it can happen uh, without them being discovered by chance you know, there's not that doesn't really happen anymore and and, uh, and unless you go and find some kind of miraculous talent that hasn't really raised at a high level. But I don't really see that scenario happening in 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 racing at the moment. We saw now that, you know, there's a Danish junior who basically won the Worlds and won the World Time Trial. Sorry, yeah, and the, um, the mountain bike. And I, I think that the Scandinavian countries, ironically, are, I think they're just well-equipped at discovering talents and then actually making sure that they get through those junior years without losing the will to, to ride at a serious level because now as a junior you're, 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 the, the commitment you have to put in is, is, is so immense that a lot of those junior riders they skip on the 23 and then they just basically go straight to a, a world tour team and I'm not sure someone from the other end of the world can do that even if their talent is significant you know that it just I think it takes there's a different there's a different some different life choices uh, going into that now I think Arriba, Larry Warbas. Andale, andale. 
going good, Larry. That sounds encouraging. Um, yeah, that sounds bullish. Um, it sounds like you've been listening to David Goggins' videos this morning. Uh, no, I mean, this should be chill, I think. At least that's my outlook on the day. So, yeah, so that's good. So we'll see. Yeah, I think we're looking more towards tomorrow. Uh, and, yeah, today for the team, like, we'll try to get Andrea up there, see if he can get more points towards the points jersey, and then... Hopefully it'll be a chill day in the bunch again, but uh, yeah, you never know here. In the dim and distant past before this welter, Larry, I remember a lot of talk about a lot of breakaway opportunities at this Vuelta Espana. You've five days in. Um, is that just race circumstances, Remco being in the lead and, well, wanting to give it away, not being able to? Caden Groves having a strong team here that there haven't been any real ones so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that, like, messed it up a little bit earlier was that uh, the results of the TTT didn't go the way everyone expected them to, uh, you know, probably largely due to the weather. Um, and so it wasn't Jumbo or Ineos in New Jersey. So then, uh, yeah, you had teams that were close that wanted to either keep the jersey or get the jersey. So then they weren't going to let a break go. And then, uh, yeah, you know, with Groves, you have, like, a sprinter who's probably quite a level above the other ones uh so for the moment i'm quite relaxed so uh yeah but i feel good and we'll see so your welter so far sounds like the antithesis of remco's welter drama every day for him no drama so far from for you i mean i don't know whether that's a good thing or not i mean i've been trying to escape the negative drama you know uh but uh but yeah i think that's a good thing so we'll see hopefully there will be some nice drama in the good direction uh the next day so we'll see yeah, i'll swap one american for another off you go larry okay um, joe's gonna joe dombras is gonna make a guest appearance on uh what do we call your feature andale andale arriba larry wobas Joe, I thought we'd have a, 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 a frank and um, forthright conversation with you this morning. Um, well, first of all, how's your welter going so far? Yeah, so far it's been okay. Um, bit of a cold start. I was doing a lot of this like specific heat prep at home, thinking it was going to be roasting as usual, but uh, it's been rainy, and actually even yesterday the start was quite chilly. I mean, so far, personally, I guess... The only opportunity thus far was the stage uh, finishing in Andorra, but I, I didn't make it in the breakaway, and anyway, the breakaway didn't arrive, so today's on a personal level kind of... Nothing burger. A nothing burger. Tomorrow's a little more substantial. Oh, it's got some lettuce and maybe condiment in there. Um, Joe, that heat preparation, what did that consist of? Because we, we saw some great pictures and videos of Larry in his hazmat suit. What about yours? <laughs> I... <laughs> I didn't go so far as the hazmat suit, but uh, Larry has a sauna at his house, which I, I don't have a sauna, so I went the poor man route, and I, had, uh, I was doing like hot baths after training. Not when I would do hard training days, but maybe on an easier day or an endurance day. Um, and then also some days when I had a, a ride, I would take a rain jacket and do the last climb with a rain jacket on. I think that the best is actually if you can just be somewhere super hot, but also you can't control the weather. And um, I, I've been in Nice for a couple months prior to the Vuelta, and we had a really hot spell in July, and then it cooled off quite a bit. Um, and I was expecting in Spain for it to be hot, so you know then you can kind of take more proactive measures. I feel that I can suffer in the heat, especially if I'm not well prepared for it, and 
I think it's something that's really underestimated. Well, it's quite fashionable. It's become a bit of an issue, hasn't it, over the last couple of years. Um, a lot more guys conscious of it. Um, have you dipped into the world of body heat sensors yet? I know some teams have. They're working with Core, for example. I think it's a Swiss company. Yeah, we actually have Core as a partner. So um, I've been using that, and I just feel that there's a trend that if I look at like peak power data, let's say take peak power data like fresh in training, I could perform better in the summer but have somewhat significantly lower peak power in warm temperatures than in say February. So it's also saying something that like it's easy to look at altitude and look at the losses in power you might have in altitude but I actually think that when it's hot and humid and you're moving at relatively slow speeds like on a climb that at least for me I think that's a bigger impact so you know how like what's the best way to prepare for that and then I guess in the race the best way to mitigate that we'll see if it's worked over the coming days we'll catch up with you over the coming days thanks well Brian that was our two old mates old American mates the Motown Maestro Larry Warbass and Joe Dombrowski Joe doesn't have a nickname yet we'll we'll rectify that um, at some point in the coming days. Also be hearing, as I hinted there in the interview, we'll be hearing about what Joe might be doing in the coming months, maybe. Heat preparation, Brian. Um, interesting. That's an interesting topic as well, talking about trends in professional cycling. That's one of the sort of hot, vogue um, issues. Um, certainly something that riders are talking a lot about when you're at races. Um, it's kind of the new altitude training, the new, I don't know, um, ketones. Do you, do you remember when altitude training sort of, I mean, that was obviously a big thing in, in at the, at the avant-garde of, of pro cycling in the mid eighties, but how, when, when riders started to pick up again and when they had to balance it out with the biological passport to figure out you know, how it impacted their general physique so that they could actually uh, standardize what the impact was. And they said there's a massive lack of science in documenting uh, altitude training. And I'm not even sure that they have the the amount of data. They obviously have anecdotal data because they can see it works uh, different ways and most of them good for various writers. But I'm not sure that there's enough data yet to really, if you were to build a real scientific uh, argument for it. And I'm sure the same goes for for heat uh, adaption training where you could basically uh, well at least that's what they say get a, a similar effect on your on your blood volume i'm not sure what i would prefer myself you tell me if you'd rather be alone up on top of tider or if you would ride your turbo trainer during the daytime in las vegas i'm not really sure yeah I, I, I strongly suspect it's i strongly suspect it might just be an excuse for larry to spend more time in the sauna in his toga um brian Let's turn our thoughts, shall we, to tomorrow's stage. And it's an important one. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Well, Brian, yesterday's dinner, we were in Paella country. Not quite in Paella country, but we were on salt flats on a sort of delta um, at the bottom part of the Costa Dorada, still in Catalonia, but we had a paella of sorts. And it was fascinating to hear about where the different rices were coming from. There were some sort of just outside the hotel windows, some from closer down um, here where we are today near Valencia, but it was um, it was very delicious. But will we have a delicious appetite 
wetting stage tomorrow. Brian, what have we got in store, please? Well, Daniel, the, the potential is there, but it's, it's also, it's safe to say that it's still very early in the, in the welter. But I think now already with the time gaps, we've seen that we could see more of the same tomorrow and, and small time gaps could eventually be a big deal in this welter. So it's 183 kilometer from Val du Chuyo uh, to the observatory at Javal Lambre. Uh, it finishes with a with a climb, so it's a real proper mountain to finish. But the the total amount of climbing is, is actually significant because it's it's the entire day is up and down. There's not a lot of flat tomorrow. Uh, just a little bit more than four thousand kilometers of climbing, which I I think could be a real explosive final. It's just that now we we have a, a situation where there's a lot of strong teams, relatively fresh uh, GC teams. So I, it's going to be interesting to see. Whether Jumbo Visma will already try and like rock the boat a little bit for for the helpers of of Remco Evenepoel and see if they can already test him because I mean the only scenario they can really aim for is to isolate him and then and then try and do a, a one-two type of attack on him. But and I'll, I'll just be I'll be quite short about this. But I, I do think it's interesting that they also have to Jumbo Visma they have to be careful who they send in to get the, the the leader's jersey you know if if, if let's say if, if Rockley's is the first guy to go and the first to get away what if he's what if he's not up to his his usual uh, his usual best you know how how are they going to negotiate that position because it would be super comfortable for Remco to to give the jersey to Roglic who's already somewhat behind and and for various reasons and then just trailing along uh, behind all the work that uh, that Jumbo Visper can do for him in and then see where, where that takes him in the later part of the race and he'll still probably be able to gain a little bit of time or at least be up to par on the, on the time trial. So I think it's, they'll, they'll, it's more like a tactical intermezzo tomorrow than, than a real test of, of uh, climbing ability. And the whole Vuelta is turning into a bit of a tactical puzzle, isn't it, for Jumbo Visma? We, the, the scenario we sort of theoretically laid out before the Vuelta on the climbs, we thought about Jonas Vingegaard going early, maybe, trying to drop Remco Evenepoel and Roglic sort of lurking behind, ready to snaffle the time bonuses. Now, the other day in Arin, Arinsal, or on the way to Arinsal, um, where we saw Jonas Vingegaard start to do that, and Primoz Roglic sort of chase him, um, it was a mistake. We heard that yesterday from Mark Reif, the direct sportive. It was something, in his words, they won't do again, which was intriguing. But also, we talked yesterday about how Remco's sprinting this newfound sprinting ability has neutered Primoz Roglic's favourite weapon. And uh, that makes things a lot more complicated. I mean, you look at the profile of a stage like tomorrow's, and this was prime sort of Roglification territory, or it would have been ordinarily in the past. Well, there's also the danger, in, and we've seen that in other Grand Tours as well, where two rivals, and Roglic knows everything about that because when him and, and Nibali was dueling it out in the 2019 Giro and then Carapaz basically <laughs> walked away with all the honours because they were focusing too much on each other. They have to be quite careful here. I'm not saying that Enric Mas is a bigger favourite or Ayuso is a bigger favourite than either Vingegaard or Remco for that matter. But they can certainly utilise that if they fixate their tactic on you know what are Jumbo doing, what are Quickstep doing, and these, those guys can basically get through half the world without having put in major work and they can just find that one moment where they can benefit from that rivalry. So I think the, what would usually be the, the fight for the last spot on the podium could potentially have a more interesting tactical 
uh, throw in a, a, a definitely a, 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 a spun a spanner in the wheel for for that scenario that everyone is so keen to talk about. Brian, we'll soon find out. Um, that's about it for this evening. We're in uh, Valencia, the, the Valencian community. That means, Brian, we're in, as far as wine is concerned, and particularly um, our selection, our El, El Clásico selection for this Vuelta a España, in conjunction with Divine Cellars. Um, you can find out about that on their website. That's D, letter D, and vinecellars.com. Um, well, as far as our selection is concerned, we're in Pieles Doradas and Bruno Murciano territory. I tasted that a couple of weeks ago back at base, back at Divine Cellars base in London, and it was outstanding. Um, so, yeah, if you are interested in wine, as you are, Brian, and you're, and you're watching the Vuelta a España, then... Uh, then, yeah, log on to www.divinecellars.com. Brian, we're going to have you back in a couple of days. I haven't consulted the schedule, but you'll be a regular fixture on this Huerta España. And delighted we are to have you. On that note, I'm going to thank you and I'm going to say buenas tardes. Buenas tardes, Daniel. And that was supposed to be the end of tonight's podcast. However, however, just as we were about to upload, I got a message from a rider we'll be hearing more from in this Vuelta a España. And what you're about to hear solves the mystery, if that's what it was, about the rider who had been sick, didn't want anyone to know, was going to tell us about it in the coming days. Um, well, fortunately, he is now feeling better. It is James Knox of Sudar Quickstep, as I said earlier. He's got an important job to do on this Vuelta a España. And here is the first entry of what's going to be James's first audio diary for the cycling podcast for a while. All right, how are we? It's uh, James Knox here. Um, back having a chat about how the race is going. I'll do a little quick overview in Barcelona to start, which was just down the road from me. So nice. That was nice. Very little travel. Um, a chaotic couple of days. All the stress and nerves of the TTT for it to start to rain in a couple of hours beforehand and terrifying experience they always are but that was particularly terrifying with the conditions and wanting to do a good job with Remco and then I punctured after approximately a K so that was all a bit for nothing but anyway um, I did the rest of the ride on my own in the dark people walking out in front of me because the marshals had let the roads open because they thought no one else was, we were last team and they didn't think anyone else was coming Going on to second day, more rain. I don't think it had rained in the area for at least six weeks, so no luck there. Quite a lot of crashes, but we all stayed upright in uh, Sudal Quickstep. And I think, in my opinion, they made a good decision to uh, change it for the GC guys, nine kilometres to go, because it was a pretty uh, chaotic last 10k there in the conditions. Yeah, particularly because it hadn't rained. And I don't know, I think there's always a fine line of having proper racing, but also... If you were to lose a few of the big GC stars that they got this race, it would be a bit of a disaster. Um, and of course, there would, there would be bound to be crashes because there's so much stress to be at the front now, to not lose time, to fight into every single corner. And then after that, we went up to Andorra, where we got lucky with the weather because there had been some snow overnight. Remco won, obviously. He looked great. Quick step. Sudal quick step, should I say. We had decent numbers coming into last climb. I think there was... Uh, six of us myself included um Bagioli and Cataneo quickly got out of the way when it really kicked off at 5k to go um but Vavaka 
and Jan Hurt was going yeah very very well right in there with the the top guys taking care of Rome Costa. That's looking good for um, having some mountain support. Obviously, we don't have quite the strength in depth of Jumbo Visma, but when you've got monument winners and uh, Grand Tour podium riders as just support, it's a little bit of a different ball game in it. So yeah, and then since then, four and five has been pretty relaxed. I've been a little bit under the weather, to be honest. A little bit belly ache, so I've been suffering. Anyway, on the on the way back up now, and I got lucky really that the um, we had relatively well. Stage four was easy for us for a bike race. It was easy. A lot of time going downhill. A lot of time soft tapping in the wheels. And then today was a bit of a funny one. Um, expected a bit more, you know, a bit more of a fight for the break there. Two guys even went in the start and then just came back to the peloton because they didn't want to be two up all day. And instead, one rider of Burgos ploughed a lonely, lonely day out front. So uh, chapeau to him. Um, but it was quite. It was hard roads in the end, up and down, left and right, all day long, um, and then a relatively straightforward finish and got myself out of the way, just like yesterday. Um, but Remco looking good. He even took some extra seconds few hard days coming up now have a lambra i think it's called tomorrow which i've done before and then a couple of days around calpe training roads where we always are for december and january training camps so yeah let's see how it goes it'll be some big tests for the team big test for remco yeah a few question marks will be answered i'm sure so anyway excited to get going excited to be here i guess from my end it's a sort of high pressure team situation you know I've been there in a quick set teams that have had the yellow, uh, the pink jersey with Joao for for many weeks but that was always just a, a pleasure we never expected it but here with Remco he's world class defending champ so um, high expectations to do a good job and also from my own perspective very keen to prove myself to be part of that team Remco you know going forward great to be in this team and uh, I know there's many more opportunities there so yeah very keen to try and uh, prove myself where I can The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.